0: Right, Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll finish the chapter this evening, Lord willing. So we'll be in verses 32 through 39. Hebrews 10, 32 through 39. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has great reward. For, if you have need of, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Lord, we need this word. By your providential hand, you have brought it to us tonight. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and may your holy spirit bring clarity to our minds so that as we hear the words from this text and from other texts here in your word that we would be molded and shaped by them we pray that you would take these and make these truths a very foundational part of our life, Lord. We know that we won't always have it easy as Christians here in this nation, that there is a time coming where we will experience persecution in a way that hasn't been experienced here. And passages like this prepare us for that, Lord. So help us have that in mind in your name. Amen. Well, all over the world, even today, persecution of Christians is something that is a regular matter of fact. In China, just in the last couple of weeks, they have begun a crackdown on all religious movements, both Muslim and Christian, but Christians there in that particular nation have had a measure of liberty in about the last decade to practice their faith, to read their Bibles, to share their faith with others, to sing songs of worship, and it's coming to an end. It's easy, frankly, to think, you know what, that's over there. (laughs) We don't have very much in the way of persecution. The worst we might get is we might get made fun of. Let's be honest. Or if we're out street witnessing, we might get something thrown at us, like a bottle of water or something. But we really don't have a frame of reference for what he's talking about here. Now, first thing that we want to point out when we come to this text is that this is not said in just a vacuum, right? He is already, this this last sermon, we looked at how warnings work. They are effectual. Warnings for those who are the elect or the believers within the church. We looked at that parable of the wheat and the tares. How that those who are the wheat within the church will hear the words of a warning and it will cause them to grow and be strengthened. Whereas the wheat will, pardon me, the tares, the weeds will recoil from this message. They won't hear it. We saw Jesus' own words that he spoke in parables For the purpose of keeping those people ignorant, not allowing them to understand the truths. Rather than the way parables are often taught that they're supposed to make truths easier to understand. And so he gives us this hard word from last week. It says that if anyone sets aside the law of Moses, then he's going to die without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who spurns the Son of God, profanes the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and outrages the Spirit of grace? That's a hard word. That's a real warning if there ever was one. He goes on to say God's going to be the one who brings vengeance against that person. But one of the things that the writer of the Hebrews does is he's like a loving father. You know, we all have kids, well, except for Caleb. But he's a kid. Maybe one day you will. So take notes. (laughs) We have to discipline our kids. We do it regularly. Now, when they're wee, wee, wee little ones there's not a lot of talking involved, right? It's like, no, 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 right? And you grab them, pull them away. You might even swat them on the tail if you need to, one of those kind of things. But as they get older and older... That form of discipline becomes less and less frequent because their capacity to reason and understand grows. And what we do then is we sit and we talk with them and we explain things to them, why things are the way they are. And sometimes we have to give them a hard word. But what the good parent does is he'll give the hard word, he'll give the correction, but at the same time, it's always tempered with grace and mercy. I heard a sermon one time about Jesus being the tough and tender deliverer of discipline. The tough and tender deliverer of discipline. It's like that saying where he has an iron fist, but it's in a velvet glove. What if both of those ideas mean is that discipline needs to happen and it needs to happen rightly it needs to be ordered it needs to be according to God's word but at the same time we know that there's always a measure of grace and mercy involved in giving that word and that's what we find here He just gave this super, super hard word. But then he goes back to remember the former days after you were enlightened, you had a hard struggle. And so he goes and explains to them, look, I know you guys are right with the Lord. At least that's his assumption for the church at large, right? He's talking to the church at large. We understand that means there's wheat and tares within the church. But he's speaking to the church With the assumption that these people are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he doesn't know their heart, does he? We don't know the heart, do we? So he gives the hard word to them. Then like a loving parent, he reminds them of their position. And their position is that they've been enlightened They've been born again, that they have received the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he tells them the hard word, but then he says, like he does in chapter 6, if you'll remember. In fact, flip back to chapter 6. He says, these people who he's writing to, let's lay aside repentance of dead works. Let's lay aside this faith towards God, instructions about washing, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead. And this will do if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. Almost exactly the same words of rebuke, almost the same hard word of warning that he gives to the Hebrews in chapter 6 as he does in chapter 10. Look down in verse 9 though. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He does the same thing. Gives them the warning, gives them the hard word, but then reminds them of their position. Right? Right? I have to discipline my kid. I've had to do it many, many, many times over the years. And in that moment, I want to communicate, this is happening because you are my daughter, because you are my child, because I care too much about you to allow you to just live your life in rebellion, in unfettered freedom. You need to have Discipline given to you. And that's what the writer does here. He does not want them walking away from this book, I believe, discouraged. I believe he wants them to walk away from this book or this sermon being preached, I think, away from that, going, Yes, okay, I needed that hard word. All right, I can keep on keeping on. And he brings them back to after they were enlightened and he reminds them of all the hardship they endured. Because what he's doing is he's saying, you went through all of this already. And if you went through all of this for Christ already, why now at this point are you flirting with leaving? You already went through all this. You already endured all this. You already saw the goodness and grace of God who brought you through all this. Who gave you joy in the midst of it. Who helped you through it. And now at this point you're going to turn your back on the Lord? It doesn't make sense. You see, that's his argument here. They endured a hard struggle with sufferings. It says here in verse 33 and in 34, it tells us generally what these things were. They were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. They were partners with those who were so treated. They had compassion on people in prison and they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Now, when... I read this and studied this particular passage. There's all manner of idea about when this was written and people trying to look into history and seeing, okay, well, where were they exposed to reproach? In what area were they you know, treating people good in prison and yet they were having their stuff plundered? Oh, it must have been in this point of history. It must have been in this point of history. But I think that it's deliberately left vague. I think the Spirit is wise in that. (laughs) This applies to anybody who's being persecuted anywhere. It isn't like I have to read this and go, oh, well, this isn't for me. If I read this and I'm being exposed to reproach and affliction, all of a sudden this matters to me and it makes a whole lot of sense personally. It would be like if someone were writing a letter to our particular church and were to say... Look, we know you endured hardship. You endured the times of leanness. You endured the times of a split. You endured the times of being with other believers who weren't like-minded. But you now need to keep on enduring. You should not throw away your confidence. Now, those of us who have been here in the church, each every one of those events has particular and specific meaning. But those who would read that letter from without might not know the details, and it might not be important for them to know the details. What they need to hear is the grace of God getting groups of Christians through tough and difficult times. And we all go through them. We all endure them. So, we're being public, or they have been publicly exposed to reproach. In Luke chapter 6... Luke chapter 6, Jesus lifts his eyes onto his disciples. This is Luke's reiteration of the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for now you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Now, Jesus here says that we are to be blessed when we experience exclusion for the name of Christ, reviling for the name of Christ, being spurned because of Jesus Christ. Now these are the kind of things that we do endure here in America, here in our It's not quite the Disneyland of Christianity that it used to be um, and becoming less and less so. But these are still things that we have and I hope you have experienced, if I'm perfectly honest. And if you as a Christian haven't experienced any of these things, then how is your Christianity being manifested to those who are around you? It's the assumption is is that because we are Christians, because we name the name of Christ, there should be an element of people who revile us, who spurn our name, who exclude us and who don't want to have anything to do with us anymore. That can be hard because we want to be liked. We, we, we as people are relational people, right? We have the image of God. That's one of the things that is within us because God is a God of relation within the Trinity, constantly in fellowship with the other two members of the Trinity. We display the glory of God when we have relationships with other people as well. And we love them. And so we want to be included and not excluded. But Jesus here says when it's for the name of Christ, it's actually something to rejoice in. Now, it is not pleasurable when you go through that, especially if it's someone who's close to you. Now, I remember a time where I sat down with a guy who was, who, well, he still is an atheist. He thinks Christianity is just absolutely stupidity at the highest level. <laughs> And he couldn't understand why a guy like me, he would say a smart guy, it might be debatable, I will grant that. But he would say somebody like me would believe in something so ridiculous. And so we we went out to dinner and we spent hours and hours, at least three hours, talking about these things and talking about scripture, talking about the Bible, talking about the word of God, wrestling with... The things he can't account for certain things. Or he has to rely on my worldview. You know how that goes. And at the end of it. He was. He just laughed. He just laughed in my face. And said you know what. You are one of the most stupid people I've ever met. In my entire life. Well, maybe. <laughs> yes. Granted that could be. I could be the stupidest person you've ever met in your entire life. It absolutely could be. But. It wasn't me that he was attacking at that moment. It was Christ. And it was my absolutely unwavering confidence in him and his truth. And we've never really talked since then. And I can't imagine where we're ever going to unless the Lord grants him repentance. This is the kind of thing that we're going to endure. It's all through the New Testament. The Paul. The Paul, Paul the Apostle says that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution so you should be you should be enduring persecution in some way shape or form it might be publicly exposed to reproach it might even be affliction in colossians chapter one paul is he's writing and boy he was familiar with affliction if anybody besides christ in the bible was familiar with affliction it was paul certainly but he says this in verse 24 ...what that word is, but he suffered afflictions. He even goes so far as to say that he's filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, that doesn't mean that he's saying there was a deficiency in Christ's atonement. His point is is that Christ didn't come and preach the gospel to the church in Colossae... ...or the believers in Greece, or the believers... What Paul is doing as an ambassador is he is going and he is suffering as Christ would have if he had gone to those places. This is how he's filling up this this is how he for the sake of Christ is enduring these types of afflictions. We know from Coloss- or pardon me Corinthians that he was beaten many times there in the book of Acts in chapter 13 is it? 14, no, it's earlier than, no, it's maybe 13, where he's beaten and he's stoned and he's dragged out of town and he's left for dead. And then if he's dead, God raises him from the dead. If he's not, then he got up and went back into town and miraculously enough. um, But he was familiar with this kind of affliction. Here he goes on to say that we're partners with those who are so treated. And you know what, I, I think that that is fellowship at the deepest level. Th- this week and about a month, and, month or so ago, I attended two different funerals, but they were both of firefighters. And you maybe, if you drove through downtown, saw the flags and everything roped off and everything, and that was for, the, that, was for that funeral that we were a big part of. And what struck me... As we interacted with all of the firemen throughout the whole time, I actually went and picked the guy up and brought him into our our care. And from the very beginning all the way to the funeral, the firemen took care of their own. They were there for everything. We had people there 24 hours a day from the, day we, the minute we brought him into our facility until the funeral happened. They were there the whole time. They were taking meals to the family. They were supporting one another. They were crying with one another. They were telling stories with one another. And to me, both of these instances have stood out and I say, why in the world doesn't the church take care of their own like that? I've personally never been in a church that took care of their people the way I've seen these firemen taking care of one another. There are Probably are churches out there that do do that. Don't get me wrong. But it certainly hasn't been my experience or I've seen it. And it's sad to me that... When I look at these men, I see that's a deep level of fellowship. It's a deep level of fellowship that puts to shame a lot of churches. And fellowship in the churches should be treated as we are partnering with one another who are so treated. That I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with somebody who's enduring this kind of persecution. Honestly, I think that further America goes down the road of secularism and materialism that we're going to find that this becomes a reality that we are going to experience and it's going to behoove us to stand with one another more and more and more and more and it isn't going to be just baking cakes. Going to be things that are much more serious, that have much more value on the line. Verse 34 says that we have compassion on those in prison. It doesn't mean just like you know, we go to juvenile hall and we talk to the kids who are there. We definitely do, we should do that, and we want to do that kind of thing. But here specifically, these people in prison are believers who are in prison because of their faith in Christ. That they had compassion on them. Now, prison then wasn't like it is today. If you were thrown in prison, you were literally just thrown in a cell. You didn't get food. You didn't get anything provided for you. That it was purely out of the good nature of your family or friends who would come in, who would provide for you such things. And so compassion on those in prison... He's referring to the fact that other Christians were going in and taking care of their own in prison. Now, honestly, that was kind of taking their own freedom into their hands, wasn't it? They could walk in there and go, oh, you're helping him. You're a Christian, too. Let's lock you up with him. But they did it and they went ahead and joyfully did it. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that yourselves had a better possession. An abiding one. (laughs) This would be a tough one, wouldn't it? For I think a lot of people to enjoy, or pardon me, not enjoy. Joyfully accept the plundering of your property. I mean, I don't have anything in my mind that worries at all right now. That if I were, I'm here and I'm preaching to you. That somebody's going to go plunder all of the things out of my house. Because... I am a church and let's just take the Christian stuff while he's not here. You know, going home and having my, you know, the front of my place vandalized in the sake of Christ. I don't, I don't even have a point of reference for that other than acknowledging that that's what this is saying. I don't know how I would react. I'm sure the Lord in that moment would give me a grace that is consistent with the action that has taken place against me. But the reason they were able to do this and the reason why we can think we could do this in this moment is that we understand we have a better possession and abiding one. Look, all of the stuff that I possess, which is not very much, is, is going to be gone anyways. It's the, the, funny, I'm in this club with some people and a lot of them are pretty, pretty well off. And they say, and they have stickers, and a guy came with a shirt on, and they kind of compete with one another. For who dies with the most toys, that person wins. You might have seen that bumper sticker or something and laughed at it, but some of these guys are really living it. And so they're constantly getting new things and better things and upgrading and trying to one-up one other with what they got and where they went and this kind of thing. Uh, that is not a mindset that has a abiding and better possession that mindset says this is all I've got right here right now I need to make the most of it here Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount he was specifically talking about this particular issue he says this in verse 19 don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if the eye is healthy, meaning the things that you desire... The eye here is a euphemism for covetousness or viewing things properly. Your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, if you're looking and lusting after things, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can be a slave to two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. They're two mutually exclusive things. Now, definitely money is a thing that God has given to people in order to use in a wise and It's important for us to have that in order to continue the work of the Lord and continue to provide for our own families. But if money and stuff is your God, then the God of Scripture is not your God. You can't serve God and money or God and mammon, right? The God of stuff. (laughs) Jesus says that you can't serve them both. But what you can do with your possessions here on this earth is understand that you are stewards of them. Meaning they aren't your own, they're God's and God has blessed you with them in order to take care of those things. So that if they do get plundered and something were to happen to them, you can rejoice in that because you're saying, okay God, this is your stuff, you're going to deal with it. And I'm trusting you that you're going to continue to provide for me as one of your own children as well. He says, because you guys have endured all of this hard struggle, reproach, affliction, partners with those treated, compassion on those in prison, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, you've endured all that stuff. Listen, don't throw away your confidence now. Keep on keeping on. You've endured all this. Why now are you having this struggle? What has changed from this to where you're at right now? You see, his point is, is the answer is nothing. Nothing's changed. Except you're tired. Putting one foot in front of another is hard every single day. Keeping on, keeping on, keeping on, keeping on. The grind is difficult and it gets to the best of people. And this is the kind of message that we need because I can look back in my own life and have seen God bring me through remarkable tragedy and difficulty in my own life. And yet I'll be perfectly honest. There's times where I'm sitting in the middle of the week and I'm studying or I'm thinking about things and I'm going, good night, Is this even worth it? And I know you all have thought that from time to time as well. You should have, anyways, being a person (laughs) with feelings and thoughts. But we have need of endurance. So why in the beginning does he say recall the former days? Because they have need of endurance. God got you through this. Do you think he's going to stop caring for you now? You've already went through all this difficulty. Why now would you turn back? It's like you're running this marathon and at mile 19.8. You go, "Nah, I'm just going to get in my car and go to Chick-fil-A. That would be hard for us. we go to in and out I guess, <laughs> or some other thing. You see what I mean? It's an endurance race, and we're going. We've gone this far. Why now would we pull out? Would we just quit? What do we call it? We have need of endurance so that you, when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. What is the will of God? Endurance, that you make it to the end. He's going to finish this book by saying Jesus will never leave you and never forsake you. And his point in saying that is that you have everything that you need to get through. Jesus already went ahead on your behalf. Let's go outside of the camp and suffer reproach along with him, just like he did. And if he made it through and he was resurrected by the father and he is our brother in all of these matters, then we can do this too. So the will of God for us is that we would persevere, that we would continue on. He goes on to tell us here that a little while the coming one won't delay. Now he's quoting Habakkuk here. It's actually not even, it's an odd quote. Most of the time in the New Testament, you'll find the writer quoting from the Septuagint usually, right? The Greek Old Testament. And so the wording's a little different than it would be if we went and looked it up in the Bible, in the Old Testament. But this one's quite a bit different. There's some interpretation going on along with it. There is some, he's reading Habakkuk, he's quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, but he's giving some kind of, I believe, apostolic interpretation along with the quotation. Yet a little while and the coming one will not delay. He's speaking about Christ here. This is his little augmentation as he makes this messianic. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. In 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5. He says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments aren't burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God the righteous one shall live by faith this is the victory that is overcome so when God here, or the writer here is quoting Habakkuk and he says a little while Jesus is going to come back He's not delaying, he's, there's a time he's going to return. But, during that time, my righteous one shall live by faith. This is how we live by faith. We have trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You see, the reason he quotes this right now is crystal clear. Because he's saying, you've gone through all of this difficult struggle And Christ has gotten you through this difficult struggle. Right now, you're thinking about bolting. And this is the point where you need reassurance. Keep on believing. Faith. Live by faith. Trust in him and him alone. The victory that overcomes the world, which is the world's the one that's treating these people like they are. The victory is by faith. I keep on and I can endure because of my trust in him. My faith in him. But the person who shrinks back. My soul has no pleasure in him. Why? Why would he say that there? Because this particular person. Doesn't have faith. Now what is it that got it through this particular period of time? We don't know. Could be. They were enamored with. The interesting things that Christianity was bringing. Since they were kind of new and novel. It could be this camaraderie. You know, people will endure a lot in cults for the sake of camaraderie. For the sake of I have a group that I'm identifying with and that I can be around. But the person who has faith, who believes, who trusts will continue to endure and will keep on keeping on. Look what he says to close this passage. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. You see, he's assuming, as he's speaking to the church, this is the warning. God's soul has no pleasure in the one who does not have faith. You have faith. I have confidence that you're not going to shrink back and are destroyed, but that you will endure. See how he concludes it? But of those who have faith and preserve their souls, we keep on keeping on. Luke chapter 21. Jesus here, he's giving the... End time stuff, but in the middle of this, he says, "I will give you a." Let me back up a little bit. You're going to be persecuted. Is the context? They're going to deliver you up, and so settle it. Therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand on how to answer. Verse 15: For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Some of you, they will even put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. But you're in by your endurance... You will gain your lives. Now, we might be apt to say, well, wait a second, a hair on my head isn't going to perish. <laughs> he just said some of you are going to be killed. <laughs> well, our lives are not this flesh. That's the hard thing, right? Because it feels very important that I keep this flesh intact. <laughs> that I keep the hairs on my head, not just because they're thinning, but because. It's my life. It's talking of euphemism for life here. But my life is not this flesh. My life is the soul within me that has been born again by the Spirit of God. If we believe that, then we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. If I don't believe that, I'm going to panic and I'm going to leave when I feel like my flesh is threatened. Isn't that what Satan himself said when Job was there enduring that test? Skin for skin, a man will do anything to save his life. Not the believer. Because the believer has a confidence in a greater possession. I fully believe that when I die... I will go before the presence of God Almighty and be there with him forever. And that is my great hope. That is the believer's great possession. It isn't a cool place in heaven. It's Jesus. And being there present with him forever. And if that is what I really believe my life consists of. Then I can endure all of this. And yeah there might be times where I struggle because things do feel bad. But at the end of it I'm going to persevere and endure. Because Jesus is my own. He is my all in all. Not this life. All of this is going to go away and abandon me or I'm going to be abandoned to it someday, but I will never be abandoned by my Lord Jesus Christ. So beloved, the word for us is today. Are you suffering persecution in some way, shape, or form? If not, why not? But if we are, especially more and more as we see the day of the Lord approaching, where's our faith? Do we trust in Christ that he will get us through all of these situations that might come against us? When we're around other people who are suffering, are we encouraging them with the truths that we find to be so important and so vital? And so, this is our life. This is our life. Our faith, our trust, our hope, our confidence are found here in the very word of God. It's our absolute authority. It's our absolute standard. And by the words that we find here, do we live. And so this is where we go when we have need of endurance. Back to the word of God, back to the word of God, back to the word of God. How do we encourage one another? With the word of God, the word of God, the word of God. Because it's by faith that we will stand. Not faith in some mystical netherworld, but faith in the words of God himself given to us. Lord... We know that we have need of endurance. We know that we have need of your spirit to continue to give us life and hope and vision. A vision of eternity with you in your presence, Lord. God, we pray that you would take a passage like this and it be so rich to our lives, even though we might not be physically going through these very things right now. We know that we can, and we know that we probably will someday soon. And Lord, when that day comes, may we be found to be those who rejoice, knowing that you, Lord, have counted us faithful. You have counted us worthy to suffer for your namesake. And when that time does come, Lord, please continue to grant us endurance, strengthen our faith, and may we be people of your book, following you and your words to the very end, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.